how deeply we need a Savior, how much we need Christ's mercy. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that for those of us who know, who have come to know that we need a Savior, who have come to experience Christ's mercy, that we would be lifted up as even in our sinfulness we look to Christ and we take great delight and have great joy. We rejoice exceedingly over what God has done for us in Christ. And so that our, our hearts are raised to that contemplation today as a result of us being here. And for those among us this morning who are not believers, maybe that is you. Consider that this morning. For those who are not believers, that you would come to see who this Savior is, that you would come to see what he accomplished, and that you would realize that you need him to save you, that you have need of salvation, and that you have need of Christ's mercy, and that you would go to him, the fount of living water, the only bread of life, the only one who can be your good shepherd, the only door through which the sheep can enter into paradise, enter into those uh, fields of nourishment. Christ is the only way. And so I pray this morning for you, if you're not a believer, that you would see Christ as your only hope in life and death, that all the things you've been clinging to, all the things you've been trying to find hope in would seem as nothing to you and that you would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Today we're just in those first seven verses, Exodus 17, 1 to 7. As we work our way through Exodus, we are in the space between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. So those are two high points, uh, two well-known, recognizable passages, the parting of the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, the parting of the sea by the Lord and the giving of the law. So we're in the space between those. As we see God's people coming out of Egypt and they're wandering around, not really wandering around though because the Lord is leading them, but they are moving through the wilderness and they are on their way to receive God's law at Mount Sinai. And that's very important for what we're reading now because Mount Sinai stands uh, sort of towering over what we're Seeing. We're meant to interpret all these passages between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai in light of what's to come, in light of God giving his law to his people. The Israelites are in the wilderness and God is testing them. We've seen this idea before in Genesis 22 where God tested Abraham, that God tests his people. And in order to test them, He uses the necessities of life. So he uses, as we've seen so far, water and food. Water in chapter 15 and food in chapter 16 in order to test them. And I think this reminds us that God, we we may tend to think that God just tests us with luxuries. Right? We're okay with that. We're okay if God just calls into question that upper crust of our enjoyments and pleasures and comforts of life. As long as God just takes the upper crust, that, the extra, uh, the luxury piece, we're okay with that. But what we read in these passages is that God goes straight to the essentials. He tests his people, not just with regard to the surplus of life, but he tests them with regard to the necessities of life. 
And he does that in order to grow them and to reveal their hearts to them. And we've seen that in our lives when God tests us. It shows us what's there. It shows us what's on the inside. And oftentimes, uh, we're, we're pretty disappointed with what we see on the inside. And that protects us from pride. Because sometimes we like to live on the surface. And as we live on the surface, we pat ourselves on the back. Uh, we're quite happy with ourselves that we show up uh, when there are Bible studies. We show up when, uh, when God's people gather for worship. We are going through our daily disciplines and uh, we are in our homes loving our spouse with our children. We think all is well, the sin is minimal, and then a test comes and the heart gets cracked open like an egg and you see all the muck that's really in there. And that points us to our great need daily for Christ as the bread of heaven and it points us to our own insufficiency. It points us to our own humility. It shows us that we are far more like that tax collector beating the chest, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, than like that prideful Pharisee thinking he had everything in order. So God reveals uh, the truth to us. He shows us. God is a God of truth. And he shows us the truth of our own hearts. We praise God for that because otherwise we'd be in the dark. We would be in the dark about what lies beneath. He also grows us through testing. As we see our sin, we run to Christ. As we are refined and sharpened, we are grown up into the head who is Christ. As Paul talks about in Ephesians, we are no longer, through God's gracious testing, we are no longer like children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, but we grow up into maturity, into Christ. So whatever it is that you're going through this morning, see it through that lens and be thankful to the Lord for it. Praise God that all is not well. Praise God that all is not cushy. Praise God that your life is just not filled with luxuries and comforts, but that God in his fatherly graces has given you these trials for your own good. Last week, we finished looking at the giving of the manna. This very well-known passage, once again, the giving of the manna in the wilderness is a well-known part of the Old Testament. It's one of those uh, ideas or passages that is pretty famous. People may recognize that without having much knowledge of the Bible. And so that's what we've looked at over the last two weeks, God's giving of the manna. The people complain about not having food. God's gracious response is a one-time feast of quail. So in the evening, he gives them quail at covers the ground, and so they have more quail than they could ever imagine. They're eating it up, having this one-time feast, and that is followed by an ongoing supply of bread. Morning by morning, God will give the bread from heaven. He will supply food for his people. Every morning, when the people wake up, he covers the ground with a flaky, white, honey-flavored substance that came to be called manna 
or man. It just comes from the idea of what is it? It comes from the question. The Israelites have never seen anything like this, which, by the way, uh, stands against a naturalistic explanation. This is not something they have encountered before. This is not something they've ever seen in their travels or ever seen in nature. This is surprising. This is mysterious. It is a what is it kind of thing, and that gives rise to the name manna. And last (coughs) last week we looked at God's commands surrounding the gathering and eating of the manna. He was testing them, as he says in chapter 16, verse 4, whether they will walk in my law or not. So that's what we were seeing last week, is that even in the blessings, it's not just in the thirst or in the hunger that God tests his people, but it's also in the eating, it's in the filling, it's in the blessings that God tests his people to see whether or not in the midst of those blessings they will walk in his way. They will enjoy in accordance with his holy word. The people are to gather a specific amount daily in the morning with none left over for the next day. So there's not supposed to be any left over. And if it is left over, it breeds worms and it stinks. It starts to rot. It starts to spoil None is to be left over. And this reminds the people of two things. One, that they are to work for what they eat. We see this as Paul is writing to the Thessalonians that uh, that is essential to living as those in God's image and living as those who work unto God and who live unto God as a stewardship of our lives, that we are hardworking. And that's what we see here. They can't just uh, do this for one day and then it lasts four days. They can't gather up a stockpile and then lounge around for the next several days. They have to every day go out and do the hard work of gathering the manna. And they are to trust, not stockpiling, wondering, is God going to provide for tomorrow? Ugh, maybe. So they put it all into a bin somewhere and pull it out just in case. No, none is to be left over. Every day they start with zero, and God fills it up. Every day, back to zero, and God fills it up. So they are called to a daily life of trust, a daily life of dependence on the Lord. And on the sixth day, they are to gather twice as much so that they can have a day of rest on the seventh day. And so every other day, if they leave some over, it spoils. But on the sixth day... They are commanded to leave some over for the seventh day. And guess what? It doesn't spoil. It's perfectly preserved. So every day they get a miracle. Every week they get a miracle. God is manifesting his power. He is showing his ability to work miracles among them, not just in these isolated incidences, but every single day. He shows himself to be mighty. Trust, obedience, rest. Here we get the introduction of the Sabbath command that on the seventh day the people are to rest. And we'll get more on that as we come to the law at Mount Sinai. And finally, a daily portion of the manna is to be kept in a jar as a testimony for future generations. So, so that boggles the mind. We're thinking, okay, so they wake up every morning. God provides this food for them. It's just there. It's just there. 
Every day, it's there. God never forgets. He never fails. It's always there. And then on the sixth day, more is provided, more is collected, and it does not spoil. But amazingly, Aaron and Moses are to see to holding a daily portion of manna in a jar. As we read in Hebrews, it ends up being a golden jar. And that is to be kept next to the Ten Commandments, next to the tablets of stone, where the Ten Commandments are written, kept in the Ark of the Covenant, and it will be preserved from generation to generation to generation. Thousands of years, centuries, millennia, God will preserve, not just for an extra day, but in perpetuity for his people. That they will see a testimony to his power. That they'll see a testimony to his faithfulness, to his care, to his love, grace, and compassion towards his people. So what have we seen from Israel as God has tested them in these ways, as God has carried out these tests? What have we seen? Well, it really boils down to two words. And they're not pretty words. Grumbling and disobeying. Grumbling and disobeying. And what I would submit to you is that this really frames the future. God has brought his people out of Egypt. Think about this for a moment. God has brought his people out of Egypt. The the exodus has definitively occurred. And then God definitively destroys the enemies of his people with the Red Sea. He makes a path for his people. His people praise him for what he has done. And then immediately after that, we begin to get the grumbling and the disobeying. And I think what we are meant to understand is that this is framing the future of Israel. It is showing us where Israel is headed. It is giving us a little preview of all the history of this nation. An anticipation of Israel's idolatrous and law-breaking future. And that's what we will read all throughout the history of the Old Testament. And of course, in that, it is a pointer to the need for a perfect law-keeping, father-trusting Savior. Did the Israelites trust in Yahweh? Did they trust the Lord? Well, by the time you get to Elijah, he really does believe that he's the only man standing. He believes that. God has to tell him, no, 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 no. There are 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to the Canaanite god Baal. 7,000 others, but still only 7,000. Elijah thinks it is one. When we get to David's son Solomon, the great wise Solomon, we see him gathering, even Solomon, gathering around himself all of these foreign women and beginning to go after their gods and goddesses. Even Solomon, the wise the son of David. This is where Israel is going. And it shows that all of the law, all of scripture, all of God's covenants, all of God's grace and relationship to his people is moving towards one man, one God man, 
one who is the son of God and the son of man who will perfectly keep God's law. He will in every respect obey and he will never, ever, ever grumble. He will trust the Father perfectly. Without this Christ, we have no hope. We disobey God every day. We grumble against God every day. What will we do without Christ? You here who think that you will uh, get in because your bad deeds somehow don't outweigh your good deeds as you see it. Consider the depth just of these two things. Your disobedience against God's word and your grumbling when things don't go your way. We are desperately in need of this law-keeping, father-trusting Savior. And everything we're reading is meant to remind us of that. It's meant to show us our own hearts, and it is meant to point us to this Christ. Today, at the beginning of chapter 17, we see that the grumbling is not over. The grumbling continues, but this time the Israelites are actually said to test God. God is testing his people, and now the people walking in God's test turn around, and for the first time we read here, they test God. The title for the sermon this morning is Thirsting and Testing. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together, Thirsting and Testing. Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. This is the holy word of the living God. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Here we go. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and seek God's grace as we come to be instructed from his word and As we do the instructing and are instructed that the Lord would be merciful to us, that he would teach us, convict us, 
uh, that he would encourage us and do all the work that he promises to do by means of his word so that we would be like trees, so that we would be like trees nourished by the streams of his word, fruitful in season, our leaves not withering, and all that we do prospering, fully equipped, ready for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you feed us with your word, you strengthen us with it. We thank you for this little piece of your word, maybe a passage that we've read over uh, many times or just haven't, have never seen before even. Lord, would you instruct us here now by your Holy Spirit, graciously, would you give us the food that we need? Would you give us our daily bread, our weekly bread, as we think about uh, the Lord's Day coming together once a week? Lord, would you feed us your people? We thank you that our food is eternal as our food is the Lord Jesus Christ himself the bread of heaven, the true bread that comes down from heaven, that gives life to your people. God, we praise you for this Christ, and we thank you that he perfectly obeyed and that he never grumbled. We thank you, Father, that he lived the perfect life and he died the perfectly sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death in our place for our sins, and that through him all of our sins All of our disobeying, all of our grumbling is covered and forgiven. Father, help us to walk in your grace by the power of your spirit, striving to put to death the deeds of the body, fleeing from sin and trusting in you. Lord, we pray that your word would feed us this morning what we need for This particular time in our lives, Lord, we know that your spirit miraculously speaks to each of us in unique ways as the word with its meaning is applied variously to each of our hearts. God, we thank you that you are so incisive as a surgeon as you go into the hearts of your people and you meet us where we are. Father, would you do that for each of us this morning? Would you call the new people into the kingdom today, Father. If there's any here this morning who are unbelievers, who do not know Christ, who know nothing of your grace, Father, we pray that they would come to bow their knee to Christ today as Lord, that they would come to trust in him as their only hope of redemption, as their Savior. Father, would you work to save sinners and to build up the saints? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we see here, Israel thirsting and testing, two things are going to occupy our attention this morning. Pretty straightforward. Here they are. You can write these down if you would like. These are our sermon points. We try to get our kids, especially in our gospel community group, we try to encourage the kids to at least get the title and the sermon points. And then hopefully they will begin more and more to fill in more than that. Not just write that down at the beginning and then go off to la-la land. So hopefully uh, that's not what's happening or at least increasingly will not happen. So here are uh, our two points for today, the, the two stepping stones to help us walk through this passage. So we're going to look at the sinning of the people and the striking of the rock. The sinning of the people and the striking of the rock. So look first with me. At the sinning of the people, we're going to look at verses 1 to 4, and then we're going to drop down to verse 7 and fold that in to verses 1 to 4. So let's read that together. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. 
but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. It's pretty, pretty demanding there, pretty ungrateful. By the way, when we hear demanding, there's a lack of gratitude there, just the entitlement mentality. Give me that. Uh, we're seeing a lack of gratitude for all that has been given. And really, all that Moses, just thinking on a human level, all that Moses has done for his people up to this point. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And there we see Moses' relationship with the Lord. We see this intimacy. Uh, Like Abraham, he's a friend of God, going to the Lord in prayer. And then we see in verse 7, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? The most fundamental reality of Israel's time in the wilderness is that God is with them. The most fundamental reality. He is with them and he is leading them. They are moving at his direction. They are moving based on his command. And as we saw back in chapter 13, God is even leading them by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. So it's not as though they just have to rely on Moses. It's not as, just they, it's not as though they're just out there in the wilderness. God speaks to Moses and then Moses goes and says, okay, we're going here next. We're going there next. This is what we're doing. This is our itinerary. And Moses is just there visually driving the whole thing. God has given them a a visual marker of his presence. He's guiding them visually. They can see it. Cloud by day and fire by night. So here we are again with further direction from the Lord. God moves them. It is the Lord who is moving them. It is they are in the places that they are because of God's will. That's the way it is in our lives. We are where we are as God moves us through life because he is guiding us. He is directing us. They don't just happen to be there. Oops, we happen to be in Rephidim. This is where we are now. How did this happen? God is moving his people. He is leading them. God moves them along from the wilderness of Sin to a place called Rephidim. And it says in verse 1, they did this according to the commandment of the Lord. And so what that tells us is the people have no doubt that they are where they are because that is where God has led them. But once again, there's a problem. Verse 1, there was no water for the people to drink. I read that even as I take a sip of water and consider... How precious it is to us. How precious water is to us. We don't, we don't really think about it. We just, uh, just kind of naturally go. It, it's, it's in some ways kind of like breathing to us. We really just sort of make some water when we're thirsty. It's not even something we're cognizant of. Sometimes we get really thirsty. I need some water. But typically we're just thinking uh, about what's in front of us in our daily lives. We don't even think about it. We just get water because that's what we need. But here we see that there was no water for the people to 
drink. Now at this point, it's important to keep in mind the manna. This is very significant for the context. It's not just something provided in the past, like the springs of Elam. Remember, God provided the springs of Elam, and then the people move on from that, and they start grumbling because they have no food. This is not merely something, the manna, it's not merely something God did in the past. Oh yeah, don't forget Make sure you remember what God did just a few days ago, just several weeks ago, however long it is as he's moving them along. It's important that we remember that the manna is an ever-present provision. It's not like Elam, which happened in the past. It's something that happens ongoing. It's an ongoing reality. Every morning, whether in seen or refidim, they wake up to bread From heaven. Wherever they go, they have it. Wherever God moves them, it's there. Once again, a naturalistic explanation just doesn't work because every place they are, it's the same deal. It's the same thing every morning. So far, the Israelites have not run up against a problem that God did not solve. Now, this is really important for us to consider. They have been in the wilderness. And they have encountered a lot of problems, just like we do, right? We encounter problems. We encounter difficulties, hardships. Call them whatever you want. Use all those synonyms for the things that we don't like in life. They encounter plenty of problems, but not a single one has come that God did not solve. They were trapped in chapter 14, and God parted the sea. And destroyed their enemies. That's a pretty amazing solution to a problem. They were thirsty in chapter 15. And God transformed the water. And then brought them to an oasis. Filled with symbolism of his faithfulness. They were hungry in chapter 16. And God gave them a feast of quail. To kick it off. In the evening and an ongoing provision of daily bread. That's what the Lord has done. Every time they've come up against a problem, God has had the solution. Surely now, right? Surely now, when faced with a problem, they will smile. They'll smile. And look up to heaven, praying to the Lord and waiting on his provision Man, isn't this going to be amazing? What is God going to do now? How are we going to see his glory now? How are we going to know him as our covenant-keeping God now? I'm a little thirsty, but God's about to show up, and it's going to be absolutely amazing. Prayer, trust, pouring out the heart to God, waiting patiently as Christ did with an empty stomach. There, tempted by Satan, waiting patiently for the Lord. But no, that's not what we read. That's not what we get. Even after all that has been done, they continue the same behavior. Even after all the problems that God has fixed, all the problems that God has solved, all the remedies to heal their troubled hearts, Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, 
And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Oh yeah, that's God's will for them, just to bring them out into the wilderness and have them die. Of course not. He didn't save his people to just have them drop dead from thirst in the wilderness. And by the way, it wasn't Moses who brought them out. It was the Lord God of heaven. It was Yahweh, the supreme God over all the so-called God's of Egypt who brought them out of Egypt. But as we read this, the question comes to us, are we not looking in a mirror here as we see this in context? Is this not what we do? Think about your own life. After all that God has done, why do we still grumble? Has he not provided for us up to this point? Are we not here this very day? Is your belly grumbling? Maybe a little, but are you starving? Are you not well watered? Here, clothed, warm, alive. Not in hell. Hearing the word of God. Singing his praises. Has he not provided for us up to this point in everything we faced? Has he not given us what we've needed? No matter how much we felt as though it was going to fall apart. Think about it. Just think about it, child of God. And even when earthly provisions seem lacking... Even when it was most challenging and most sparse and dry, are we not able to look back this very day and see how he matured us? To see how he deepened our faith? To see how intimately our relationship with him became how close he pulled us to himself. How he grew our character and strengthened our endurance. How he enlarged our hope in the life to come and gave us a clear view of heaven so that the things of this earth grew strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, in the light of his power, in the light of his promises. Did he not do all those things over and over and over again and fill our bellies? Of course he has, just as he did for Israel. But what we have here is not just another instance of grumbling. No, 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 no. This is not merely another example of grumbling. This is heightened antagonism towards Moses and Yahweh. I want us to see that. This is a deeper level here that they've sunk down into. This is a higher tower that they have built, a higher mountain peak that they have climbed. And what that reminds us is that sin doesn't just breed more sin. Listen to this. Sin doesn't just breed more sin. Sin breeds worse sin. You think you can just 
stare too long at this picture or that picture or this person or that person. But you won't do, you won't do this or that. You won't go that far. You can lie in this little way, but of course, you won't go that far out there. You can be angry with a person in your heart and hold strife and hostility and bitterness, but you would never strike them or murder them or slander them and destroy their life. No, that is folly. That is a lie. Sin doesn't just multiply more of its own kind. It adds, it heaps, it gets worse, it gets deeper. We sink deeper and deeper into the muck. Every time we feed that vice, every time we feed that sin, we're deeper and deeper in sin. Though we be in Christ, how can it be? Deeper and deeper we go. We see this deepening here in two ways. And I want you to see clearly where I'm getting this. I'm not just making this up out of thin air. We see this deepening of sin in two ways. First, the way they treat Moses. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. This word quarreling goes beyond grumbling. You may just kind of go over this word and just think, oh, it's a synonym for grumbling. No, it is more formal. It is more hostile. It gives the sense of formal accusation. It is as though the entire people have brought an accusation against Moses. There's two to two and a half million people, and then there's Moses. And there he is under the avalanche of their angry accusation against him and his motives and what he's done. And you can see the hostility of it from Moses' prayer to the Lord in verse 4. Listen to what he says to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. What that tells us is that the anger of the people is so great. Now keep in mind the context, all that God has done, all that has happened at this point, in this context, eating the manna, the anger of the people is so great that Moses perceives a threat to his own life. We're meant to understand that they have reached a new level here. But that's not the main idea. Second, and even more, the people are said here to test God. That's how we know that the sin has bred deeper sin. That's how we know that they're climbing that mountain of sin. Because here for the first time, we are told that the people test God. Verse 2, Moses says, why do you test the Lord? But if, verse 2, were left alone, well, we would be left scratching our heads. And asking, why does Moses say this here when he hasn't said it before? I mean, if you're following it, the only difference you get up to this point is that they quarrel. We've been told before that they grumble. We've seen that repeatedly in the past. But now we're told they quarrel against Moses. So how is that testing the Lord? Well, the answer comes in verse 7. We're not told at this juncture what the people say. We're told at the end in verse 7. 
This is what the people are saying. They tested the Lord by saying, here's what they're saying to Moses. As they're beating Moses down, as they're quarreling with him and arguing with him, as they are in some ways showing hostility such that they might stone him, one of the things that they say is, is the Lord among us or not? Is there any God up there? Is this God even real? Can this God even be trusted? Is he here? Does he care? Hello, God. That's what the people are saying. This testing is trying to coerce or manipulate the Lord, putting him to the test. Well, God, are you with us or not? Can we really depend on you or not? And all of this, here it is, in spite of all that God has done for them already. Just, just let, it, let it settle. Let it sink in. It is described in Psalm 95, verses 8 to 9 in this way. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. So Psalm 95 is referring to this event. And it says, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. Prove yourself, God. Is that what you're doing? In your life right now? Prove yourself, God. If you really care about me, I'll get that job. If you really care about us as a family, then we won't be living here anymore, in this place. If you really care about us as a family, then this needs to happen. If you really care about me, Lord, you'll heal me. If you really care about me, Lord, then I'll get this situation and not that. Really? When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, Though, here it is, though they had seen my work. Now notice something here. They had seen God's work, and what do they do? They harden their hearts. In other words, they are going the way of Pharaoh. Do you see that? They are doing what Pharaoh did. What did Pharaoh do? Time after time after time. He saw God's power. First plague, second plague, third plague, fourth plague, all the way up to the 10th plague. Then he still went after Israel. He saw the sea parted and he still went into the sea, hardened, hardened, hardened. Yes, God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We hold those together. And what we're told here is that the Israelites in this story are going the way of Pharaoh. They've seen his power and time after time after time, they've hardened their hearts. Do you know that every time we come up against a trial and we grumble against God, God, why is it not different? We're hardening ourselves in that kind of response. And then, it gets, and then things get worse or it continues. And what do we do the next time? The same thing. We harden our hearts to the Lord. Turn from that this morning. Trust in Christ's grace to you. Trust in the power of the Spirit. Repent of that this morning. Turn from that this morning and say, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. No more hardening my heart in this way. This is the way of Pharaoh and it is the way of Satan. And we know it is the way of Satan because that's exactly what he tempts Jesus to do. He's got three rounds in his gun. 
He's got three rounds. And this is one of the rounds he uses against Christ. Matthew 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes the Bible and he perverts it. But here, testing Jesus, tempting Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. God will lift you up. Just test him. Throw yourself down. Make sure he's with you. Make sure that he's really your father. Just throw yourself down. He'll scoop you up. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There we see our mighty Christ. There we see our courageous Savior. There we see the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb who stood in our place, endured the temptation, and said no. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which refers to this event in Exodus 1-7. As Jesus is standing there before Satan, he thinks of this story in Exodus 17. That's amazing. That really brings significance to the text that we're looking at this morning. It's not just some unrelated, long, distant passage that we're marching our way through, talking about man and other things that have nothing to do with our lives as we might see it. We're, we're talking about a passage that is on the frontal lobe of Christ as he's being tempted by Satan. Exodus, I mean Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So Jesus has this event in mind as he stands against the temptation to test God the Father in our place. So that is the sinning of the people. Now we come to the striking of the rock. And for that, look with me at verses 5 to 7. 